Hi, and welcome to the Define Your Exit podcast from Emergent. At Emergent, it's our mission to own and operate an active portfolio of exceptional brands that have long-term vision and turn them into category leaders. Now, every week we discuss valuable strategies with industry leaders and service providers that will maximize your business valuation and allow you to define what selling your business looks like. Whether you're looking to sell your business tomorrow or just curious to learn more about the Amazon aggregator space, this podcast is for you. Now, I'm your host, Barkas Patty, and I'm grateful to be part of the Amazon community for over six years, working in the software space and selling on Amazon since 2015. In that time frame, I've helped thousands of businesses launch products on Amazon and build great software for analytics, marketing, and customer engagement. And we'd love to connect with you and answer any questions you have about exiting your business and starting that next chapter of your life. Go to Emergent.com to contact us or email me directly at Barkus at Emergent.com. That's B-A-R-C-U-S at E-M-E-R-G-A-N-T dot com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you can get notified about every new episode. Hey everybody, Marcus Patty here with Emergent, episode five of What the Exit Podcast. Today we're talking about with Rob Stanley with Gadita. And Rob, I've known you for a while. Last time I saw you was Prosper in July. So it's good to see you again and chit chat about, about a lot of things. So real quick, just do a quick intro of yourself and then uh, tell us a little bit about Gadita and then we'll get into some conversation. Yeah. Hi. So I'm uh, Rob Stanley. I'm chief marketing officer for Gadita. We are the global leader in FBA, Amazon reimbursements and uh, refunds. And we've been around like six years. Definitely one of those things that a lot of people hear about, but don't fully understand when it comes to auditing to get refunds and reimbursements. So let's clarify real quick. You talk about refunds. These aren't customer refunds. These are refunds that a business is owed from Amazon. Yeah. So this... This is strictly for Amazon sellers. So Amazon sellers, if you go in and read your Amazon terms of service, what you end up finding out is uh, when it comes to a lot of scenarios, let's say Amazon transfers your inventory from one warehouse to the next and it gets damaged or stolen or lost. um, You actually are responsible for going to Amazon to audit them to get a refund for those damaged, broken, stolen items Uh, that say didn't show up at the warehouse they moved it to. Another scenario would be if I ship in a thousand items, a thousand units to Amazon's FBA warehouse, and I went into Seller Central, submitted all the information, I sent a thousand of these things, they take off and they show up there and all of a sudden there's only 990 units, there's a discrepancy there. So you have to audit Amazon to be able to get that refund on those 10 missing units, unless obviously they can find them. That is something that actually we help you basically audit Amazon, get an Amazon FBA refund for those missing units on that scenario we're just talking about. And uh, we submit all the paperwork for you. So it is automated in the sense of looking for the issues. But one of the things you have to do is you have to actually submit by hand or a person has to submit the paperwork to request the refund or reimbursement for that. Again, there's a lot of other scenarios. For instance, some people don't know you sell an item through Amazon's FBA, gets to the customer, talks to Amazon and gets a refund back, but never ships the item back. You still have to submit the paperwork to get that refund. So this is uh, something that happens uh, a lot. Gatita is currently auditing over $10 billion a day in, for Amazon sellers. And again, if the way it works with us 
is if we basically only take a small percentage of whatever we find. It costs zero to sign up. There's no monthly ongoing fee. And then I was telling Barkus about a quick scenario here that uh, people may not understand. So let's say you go sign up with Katita and uh, we get you a bunch of refunds and you've been with us for a little while. And all of a sudden, a couple of months go by and there was no refunds coming in because you really didn't have a lot of items going in, which by the way, you were charged zero because we didn't find anything for you. But all of a sudden it pops up like, oh, hey, I got the small refund. Why did I get a refund when... I wasn't sending items in. What ends up happening is we sometimes are able to find new scenarios where you're due a refund. So being that we're the biggest in the industry that do uh, refunds and reimbursements, you actually get to capitalize off of the other people in our database without you even knowing it. And sometimes you may be helping other people. So for instance, if there is a new issue that comes up that maybe has a possible uh, refund for it, We'll tag that, watch that, submit the refund for them and see if Amazon actually gives back that refund. If they do, then what we do is apply that same scenario to everybody in our database, all our customers, and you may benefit from that scenario that we just found, just like maybe there's a scenario that you had that may benefit other sellers. So that's just a couple of scenarios there on how we help Amazon sellers get uh, refunds and reimbursements back. I love your business model where it's just, it's, it's essentially free unless we find some money for you. And it's a very manual process. There's no, if you're inside Seller Central, if you're using it every day, you have to go do all these manual tasks yourself. You have to go sit there, download a report, pull it up, and then look through spreadsheets, which can make your eyes bleed really quickly. So it's a very manual process. So basically to do what Kadita is doing, you essentially have to hire a full-time person or, or a VA, depending on what scale you're at. Absolutely. Random, random question. What's like the biggest refund you guys have ever, or just a rough approximation? Yeah. So I can't quite give that, but let me give you an, an answer to that though, Barkus, that's maybe a little indirect, but maybe helps some of the sellers out there. On average, Gatita recovers approximately one to 3% of your annual FBA. If you're doing a million dollars on Amazon FBA, you're looking at about Ten to thirty thousand dollars a year, we recover in refunds. That just that scenario right there just shows you how many issues are going on. And not to speak bad about Amazon, but they've got a lot of warehouses and a lot of people. A lot of moving parts are going on, so things yeah. are going to happen. Those, the, the physical inventory, it's touched by a lot of hands, and just Absolutely. human error will happen, and there's nothing you can do about it, especially at the scale that Amazon is. I'm sure Walmart experiences the same problems. Target. Absolutely. You name it. Everybody, anybody that has millions of, of physical inventory, mis, millions of pieces of physical inventory. So it's super interesting what you guys do. So what is, um, what's like, let's say I sign up, let's say I'm doing six figures a month right now. Sure. And let's say I sign up and I'm like, I don't know, you guys look, do your thing. What's an average time frame for me to get a response of whether, Hey, we didn't find anything for this month or what's the time frame of getting money back. I guess a lot of this depends on Amazon speed, but yeah. So usually what ends up happening, let's say if, if you haven't had anybody audit your account for refunds, you're usually going to see a big burst of money at first. And the reason being, uh, and this is restrictions on Amazon's part, we are able to go back approximately 18 months to find you refunds on a lot of the basic stuff like inventory, like the scenario I gave you a thousand units sent in, but only 990 show up. But then you get into things like weight and measurement issues. So one of the things we do in our dashboard 
is we can actually pull in and tell you the current weight and dimensions that Amazon is showing as it being in their warehouse and what they're shipping it as. Now, there can be issues where let's say maybe the, you sent it in and their scanner scanned it for the cubic dimensions because they have this really cool scanner that does it in like seconds. And let's say maybe it was like a purse and the handle, uh, the handles of the purse were sticking up instead of inside because somehow they came out on the one they scanned. That could add what an extra four to six inches of dimensions to your item that really that's not the correct dimensions and maybe the weight even is possibly off, but that's a whole nother thing. So what you could do is we'll pull that into our, our uh, dashboard. You could take a look at that and you can let us know, hey, this weight is incorrect on this item or this dimension is incorrect on this item. And once you do that, we actually submit that for you. Now, in a scenario like that, if I'm not mistaken, you can only go back about 90 days worth of sales to get refunds on. And that can make a difference. So we tell a lot of people, when you sign up, take advantage of our tools we have and including that weights and dimensions. But to answer your question a little bit better, in most times you'll see, like I said, a big burst in refunds and reimbursements right at the get-go. You yeah. could see some as early as within a week or two. Some could take up to two, three months. We've seen even some take se uh, several months, like up to six months before we get a refund. Really depends on the scenario and how yeah. much uh, you know paperwork and information Amazon wants back from you, which we try to handle most of that for our customers and try to just let them concentrate on running their business. Yeah. So basically signing up, it could take as little as a week. That's probably not the average, but it also depends on the complexity of the business. You know, what categories you're in, the size, like if you have 10,000 SKUs versus 10 SKUs, it just takes a little bit longer, but it's nice to hear that you can go back 18 months on certain things and then size. So dimensions have always been a debate. So for everybody listening, let's say you see that Amazon's charging you and you that the dimensions are off. So they're charging you more. Like the way you fix that is, is you open a case. Yep. Nobody likes opening a case with Amazon Seller Central. It's just a long process. And all of our brains are like speed and efficiency, trying to run these businesses and scale them as fast as we can. So it's like one of these things, like I'll get to it later. And what happens is like these tasks that you don't want to do, you end up not doing. So I think it's really important that more people know about what you guys do, because not only like you don't charge anything, like you take a small piece, you take basically <clears throat> commission for everything that you recover, but that's money that that person's not even properly looking for in the first place. And it takes just a lot of time off of their plates. But also like you talked about like the average of one to 3%, if you're doing a million dollars a year, 20, 30 grand, that's a healthy add on to, to your net profit. And if you're looking to sell like that, just helps you increase your EBITDA, your, your valuation. Absolutely. It's because if you get back that one to three annually, like you push that out, like the way it works is it just, it compounds, compounds not the right word, but it just, it adds us adding 30 grand, even if you're doing a million dollars a year, that's a healthy chunk of change that you didn't even, you weren't even looking for. Absolutely. No, you're correct. You're correct. And we actually have, if you're at any of our trade shows, we have a case study that we actually put on the back of our flyer. Uh, customer was doing $18 million a year. Okay. And we show the discrepancy in the sense of like how many of how many units they shipped out that year, how many of those units were affected by issues with Amazon's FBA. And to break it down though, basically we ended up recovering $151,000 for them. Now take that $151,000. They come to somebody like you, Barkus, and they're like, hey, I'm looking to sell. 
if they haven't ever done an audit or anything, we already know it's approximately one to 3% of your annual FBA sales are going to be discrepancies. They're going to have issues. So taking that guy's scenario, $151,000, a 4X, you know, what, a 4X, you're looking at what, like $600,000 approximately at a 4X multiple, 8X multiple, you're looking at what, 1.2 million now? So it depends if you're looking to sell and you have not done an audit, here's the funny thing, okay? And take this in a laughing matter, but we work with all the aggregators, including Barkus. And guess what? Soon as they get your account, they're going to do the audit. They're going to get that money back. So why wouldn't you add that to your bottom line and turn around and get a multiple on it? Now, yeah. just so you're aware and to go over into this a little more detail. Yes, usually the first audits are going to be bigger. Like you're going to be probably in the higher, closer to that two, three percent versus if you're doing it every year, you're probably in the 1.5 percent uh, type area. But still, uh, the aggregators are going to know, including Barkus, that, okay, if you come to us and you just did the audit and you got 3% back, it's probably more like 1.5, go on, go, which they'll add, still add that in. I mean, that scenario I gave you, the $18 million guy, $151,000, that actually, I think, came out at 1.6 or 1.8% because uh, they had already been doing some auditing stuff themselves. But still, yeah. that's a lot of money left on the table if you're not doing it. And so I guess maybe make sure that if you're dealing with the aggregator, either do it before or make sure you have something in there regarding it, getting a refunds and reimbursements. Yeah, absolutely. Like when every aggregator or, or whatever, if any business or person that's looking to sell that wants to buy your business, you do like a preliminary due diligence. So we get to look at your P&L and there's a part in there where you put in all the software that you're using, whether that's Gadita or somebody else, like we know how Gadita works and it's possible for us that we could get back. We could get back a portion of the money that we just spent on the business. Everybody looks at the software. Everybody, you, you have to show that. You have to show your P&L, which is uh, again, like me and Rob were just talking about. It's not a sexy thing to, to talk about or work on, but you have to show your P&L and show that your business is stable and, and profitable and is scalable. So it, it's just one of those things that, that aggregators look at. Is, and one of the things is software. And a lot of that stuff is ad backs, but we could talk about that later. So super yeah. interesting what you guys do. And how did, how have you guys, you guys have been around for a while now, but how have you seen, I guess these new scenarios are always popping up because Amazon's always evolving. So how do you detect, let's say there's a new scenario where I'm allowed a, a reimbursement from Amazon, but how do you guys approach that? How do you guys find those? That's, I guess that's a, the question. No, there's a few ways. There's a few ways we do that. So first of all, we have at this point, I think we're about 80 plus employees and a lot of our employees that basically submit your paperwork to Amazon to get the reimbursement or refund, they're actually former Amazon employees that were the ones that received that paperwork. So oh, perfect. we have them now in-house. So they are very familiar with the process of submitting it, making sure it's done right, knowing the rules and everything. You don't want to keep submitting over and over again, or if something's been submitted, a uh, quick example of something being submitted or something not to do. I was talking with Brandon Young this about a month and a half ago. And Brandon uses Gatita, came out on a live event and basically said, I have a whole team of CPAs. I have a whole team of VAs that submit for me. And in the last, I think it's 60 days, I'm paraphrasing, last 60 days, Gatita recovered me $6,000 that my team couldn't see. Yep. Now there's just a, a quick example. Now getting back to what you were saying, we are always looking for what new scenarios could come up. We're trying to figure out what 
you know, what changes have been made. We're always, unfortunately, not me, but some of the team is watching terms of service, sure. looking for changes anytime there is. And of course, a lot of it comes from customers. Customers come in every, with having, being in business six years, we have the largest database of customers. And it's, so we're going to see quite a few scenarios, which kind of puts us at an advantage over some of the other companies. The fact is that somebody comes in and they're like, hey, I think there could be a possible scenario here where I could get, it's something we'll take a look at if we're not 100% sure, and as long as it hasn't been submitted already, we'll turn around and, and submit that and we'll watch it and keep an eye on it and see, do they get a refund back? And if they don't, then we know, okay, hey, that that's probably something that's not going to happen. But that's one of the ways that we see it. I get people all the time at trade shows come up to me and they start asking me full scenarios. I always tell them, look, it's free to sign up, contact our support person, tell them your scenario. And we'll see what we can do. And speaking of partners, I know you come, you come from Helium 10 and we are partners with Helium 10. They do have their own tool there. We're on the partner page at Helium 10. So Helium 10 it has a great tool. We love Helium 10. They have a great tool. It's, it's a very basic tool and it's great. What the good part is we won't submit anything that Helium 10's already submitted for you. We're looking yep. for a lot of the deeper issues that go into things like shipping labels, uh, when you're shipping to FBA warehouse, if you cancel it and you don't go in and submit it for a refund, you're due that refund. There's one for you that a lot of people don't even know about. They just figure if I cancel it, it's automatically refund. No, you have to go back and actually submit to get that refund. They, it goes deeper than that too. I've only been at the company six months, but man, I, I hear scenarios probably every show I go to, I hear a new scenario and I'm just like blown away at some of these issues that sellers run into, but it's good to know these things. And also I look at it as those are good sellers that they're paying attention at these possible issues, because the reality is when they come to you guys, let's say to sell their company, they're going to have a really good understanding of everything going on in their business. They're deep into it. They understand, Hey, I went and checked the weights and measurements issue on this. And we submitted that helps on a couple different ways. That helps with storage, possibly. That also helps when it ships out. Maybe it ships, if it's maybe a, a quarter pound less, it could drop into a new category and save you 70 cents to $3, depending on what that, that weight is. So it really, I like those people that do that. Those are probably good companies to buy because odds are they probably have a lot of their paperwork together. They're probably using accounting people. They have profit and loss statements, which we were talking about uh, off air before we got on here. And uh, Marcus, I know you kind of know some of my backstory. I ran my own e-commerce business for 20 years. I started in 2001 selling electronic parts online, turned into an iPhone business in 2007. And then around 2013, a buddy of mine and I ended up starting a Amazon business, which we called import company back then. They weren't really, because we were selling at other marketplaces too. But yeah. I exited from both those in 2018. Was nothing like it is. I went to a broker at that time. And because there was no really aggregators in 2018 are very few, if any. Yeah. And I went with a broker and the, the broker did not get what I did not understand my business, did not understand the correct buyer to buy the business. And it was a little bit of a waste. Ended up after getting out of that contract for about three months, I was able to actually go out and find my own buyer because I knew my industry when it came at least to the iPhone stuff. So yeah, it's, it's such a better scenario now for sellers that want to sell their business 
to yeah. people like, but there's a lot of things that you got to have in place. And Barkus probably knows better on some of these things that you need to have in place, like a proper PL, make sure you understand your landed cost. I heard that's a big one, making sure you understand your actual landed cost. And I'm sure there's a few more, Barkus. Yeah. And here's like the entire thesis of what we're, what I'm trying to bring with this podcast is these strategies to help maximize the value of your business, whether you want to sell it or not, that's, it's relevant to me if you want to sell, but it's irrelevant to the entire conversation. What is, and I'm just going to speak for us as aggregate. What I look for is a turnkey business. We don't want to find, we don't want to buy this business. that has got maybe one great hero, ASIN, but there's all these other problems. We don't want to do that. Like we want to buy a business that is already running on its own. Of course, like with capital, you can do a lot quickly if you have that capital in your back pocket. We're not looking for these brands, terrible PL or expenses all over the place, refunds all, all over the place. Like you don't like you basically don't understand the numbers of the business. So doing these things help for, for multiple reasons. If you want to set like it just the the classic example I use this all the time is if you're going to sell your house, Rob, if you're going to sell your house right now, there's probably 10 things in your head that you want to do to the house before you put it on the market. Maybe there's a little bit of landscaping. Maybe there's a, a, a leaky sink, do a little bit of painting, just general cleaning up there. You're, you're preparing this because you want to present it the best in the best manner possible. And that's how you want to approach selling your business. If you don't put the time in to prep it, you're going to, you're leaving money on the table because there's a lot of aggregators out there, we're all about speed. How quickly can we get this done? What's the easiest way for the, the, the business owner and the easiest way for us? And does that match, right? If somebody has to go through and look through your seller central reports, because you just don't have a PL, if they, if there's all these numbers that are all over the place, if we're like, well, why is this here? And this, most of them, the, the best aggregators are going to bounce the ones that can offer you the big, the, the most amount of value for your business. All this stuff is, is really important. And you were talking about the PL, and I talk about it probably way too much. I'm not a numbers guy. Like I don't like looking at them, but it, it's like pulling back the curtain. If you really get to see the, the real numbers of what's happening and that's where you see the real opportunity. Oh, great. This product, you've got a hero ace and which means like maybe it generates 75 to 80% of, of your monthly revenue, but you have to keep the only reason it's doing that is because you're cannibalizing all your profit through advertising. Like we get to look at those kind of things and it's, can we optimize their advertising? Are there things that we can do to optimize that listing? So there's a million scenarios when it's like, when it's going into looking into a business and, and every aggregator, every broker, like they all have their, their own checklist. They have a questionnaire that they run through with, with the business owner and everybody says, again, we're all a little different, we have, but we're all looking for the same thing. We're all looking for opportunities to scale. And it's super interesting doing this. I, and I have, uh, this makes sense, but I never, it never came to light until I started talking to people. When I started talking to people and learning about why they want to sell their business, a lot of people are, are, are literally kicking the tires. Like, what can I get for it? I'm not ready. I might, I'm ready to sell if you give me the number that I want, but the majority of people are like, I've built this on my own and I know that I'm at my limit unless I raise capital or I build out a team and I don't want to do either one. Like a lot of what we're seeing is people that are like, I've built this and I've done it on my own and I'm super proud of it. We do like a million a year or five million or whatever that is, but I'm at my limit. I don't know how to scale this. So they hit their plateau and they're happy to exit because they don't want to raise capital and they don't want to build out a team. Building a team is a... A skill like we were talking about this earlier about just hiring people in general like it's just 
it's especially hard right now because everybody can get the job of their dreams if they're really looking for it. If they're looking for Absolutely. something like that, like this is just, that's just the market it's in for jobs. I kind of went off on a, on a little. That's all right. One note. thing, one thing that though, you and I both are not numbers guys, but you got to know your numbers. Like you got to yes. go learn your numbers. I watch Shark Tank all the time. How many times they get in there and they start asking them numbers and people, I don't know, but it's like, and they know some basic. Yeah, and they do. And those are usually yeah. the ones that don't get a deal. So I, I a couple of, for instances, I'm running my, my iPhone company and I give you a little bit more of the scenario. I had an office, had employees. So there's a little warehouse, that type of thing. I knew daily how much I had to make every single day to at least break even with payroll, rent, overhead, cost of a server, cost of online business, everything that was involved. I had it all broken down on a sheet. And all I did was like, go through my head. What all do, are we spending money on? Yeah. How much does it cost? Break that down by call it 30 days. And I knew approximately every day, how much I needed to make in sales to be able to basically break even, or did we make money that day? And probably shouldn't look at it that closely because really I found out I should have been more looking at it a month view. Yeah. You know, do we make money this month? Do we not? I know I, I did get granular there and which was kind of good though, but I had it down the whole scenario of, okay, I bought this product out of China. I had to pay to truck it over to get consolidated so I could save some money on getting it in a container that's shared. And then when it got to uh, the port, I had to also pay basically a company to get it through customs. Then you have to pay customs. You have to pay duty on top of that and all the tariffs and all that stuff. I had all that down to the penny of what my landed physical cost was at my warehouse for each of those items. And that's something that aggregators want to know that. They want to know what is your actual cost, if not to the warehouse, to the FBA warehouse, right? Sure. And then also you got to start looking at if you've been around, if you've been selling for a year and you're paying storage fees, you got to start factoring in storage fees, break down those storage fees on each of the product. You got to add that to your cost of your product. If it sits in that warehouse for, let's say it takes you two to three months to run through that inventory of a thousand units or something like that. And it costs you, I don't know, an extra let's call it 25, 30 cents a unit in storage fees. You got to put that on there that, Hey, that went towards my uh, loss. So yeah, those are things you got to know. There's, there's so many ways to like sit there and look at the numbers. Like you're right. You have to know your numbers. And one thing that we, that I see personally a lot is, like I said, there's like a preliminary questionnaire. Hey, all these questions that I want to ask somebody before we put in an offer. And one of the things is like, have you ever negotiated have you tried to renegotiate any type of cost with your supplier in the past 12 months? And if somebody has never done, that's a save, that's a cost saving easily. There's a lot of things coming from them. So real quick, if you're listening to this, if you've never talked to your supplier about renegotiating either terms or costs or shipping, anything like that, I know costs are all over the place, but it's worth the conversation. It's worth just asking for it. And, and, if you have that relationship, if you've built that rapport with it, with maybe you have just one supplier, maybe you have just one manufacturer or, or 12, if you've built that rapport, that's an easy ask. And they're more than willing to at least have that conversation with you if you have that rapport. But if you only contact your supplier, like I need an order or where's my order, it's a harder conversation. So Absolutely. just building that relationship is more than just processing an order. Western culture, like in, in at least in, in North America, it's really just, here's my money. 
give me my stuff. That's how we tend to operate. It's not out of, it's always, it seems like we don't have time. Like we're always trying to save time. Eastern culture, it's very, they're, they're, they really respect a relationship with everybody that they do business with. It's a big deal. Now you don't have to become best friends with your contact, but it does help along the road. And all these things right here, like all these things that we're talking about, again, is just like saving a little bit of money. Like you're talking about too, the the size of the box. Like it, it maybe you can't save money on shipping or terms or anything else, but you can ask them too. You can ask your supplier, can I, can you put it in a smaller box? And maybe you're right over that threshold of a different size that costs an extra 15 cents or whatever, but that step adds up over time. And all these, it's just, it's just worth the conversation. Yeah, work with your factories too. Like have your factories tell you ahead of time, depending on the item they're shipping to the FBA warehouse, a lot of times what'll happen is you'll have, let's just call it like a retail box. Then they put that within another box, which goes into a master box. Do you need all those layers? Dep no. uh, don't get me wrong. Certain items, you're probably going to need those layers. Yeah, you know, if it's a glass space, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly, but yeah, then also- there's like thickness of cardboard. You start getting into thickness scenarios. They're going to use a thick box because they're not paying the shipping. They're not, they want to make sure the product gets, they're not damaged. So they get paid and they're not on the hook for it. But you really need to look at how thick of a box they're using. How much extra weight is that adding? Like you said, talking with or negotiating with your suppliers. We were probably when with our Amazon company, we were dealing with probably seven different warehouses. So we actually had a guy, an actual guy that worked for us in China, consolidating everything for us, handling the logistics. And he got a small you know, percentage, but a lot of times we actually were able to get him to call the factories and do the negotiating for us since yeah. he's part of our team. And then uh, we were actually importing also from India and in India, the supplier we had over there was amazing. That guy literally was kind of like, eh, pay me whenever. But it's who does that? Talking about boxes, the first thing that came to my mind is like an iPhone box, right? Like ever since day one, that box has been just really a, a beautiful piece of packaging. If you respect packaging at all, and if, if you're listening to this, you probably appreciate a good box, right? What adult doesn't appreciate a good box? But if you think about that box, like it's so like the tolerances, you've got to, you got to take the top and not squeeze it too much and then try to wiggle it out. It just doesn't fall out. It's super like tight. suction cupped. <laughs> yeah. Super tight tolerances. Everything is packaged in there perfectly. My point to that too is this, when Apple stopped shipping the charger and the cable, it's not about e-waste. I guarantee you it is about, we can save X amount of dollars because we're shipping a hundred million iPhones each year. And it does make sense if you have, if I, I understand where they came from and, and I understand that some people don't like it, but the e-waste is electronic waste, meaning cables and chargers and stuff. Yep. If you get the same type of phone every year, whether you get an Android over and over again, and I think Samsung has started to do the same thing with some of their flagship phones is not shipping the charger and cable anymore. And I, I understand where from the e-waste side, because I've got a, I've got a, a drawer full of cables and, and pucks and everything, but no, it was a cost saving measure for Apple and they're like Samsung and, and the rest of them are going to follow suit, but that, that somebody ran the numbers, right? Somebody's like, somebody contacted their manufacturer and is like, how much is, how much does it cost to make this box? And then they already calculate out the e-waste. The, the e and then so now that they're thinner boxes, we can fit maybe 30% more 
in a shipping container. That's going to save us money on shipping. And when you're at that volume, like the, the packaging and the boxes and all that just matters so much. I would be interested. I would love to see the numbers. I know I'm I know Apple won't produce it, but I would love to see the numbers on <laughs> just how much money they saved by making the box smaller, lighter. So, hey, that I was a part of that whole e-waste movement. We were selling screens, batteries. We were helping people repair their iPhones instead of throwing them into the getting more life out of them, giving them to their kids. Phones aren't cheap. Oh. So I was really a part of that whole movement. We were selling accessories, all kinds of stuff, but mainly yeah. we were parts. At one point, I was probably the largest supplier of iPhone parts in the United States, just uh, to give you background. Yeah. I used to, back in the day, gosh, this is 15 years ago, but I used to buy broken phones. I would buy broken phones from anybody from, and this is like dating myself, but like Craigslist and, and, and <laughs> just looking online phone. And a lot of this was local and stuff, but that I, would just, I wouldn't do anything to that phone and I would just resell it and put it on eBay. Yep. And man, I'm like, there was about two years that I just, I made so much money and I would buy the phone. Some people would just want to be like, Hey, this just come get it. It's free. I would sometimes get boxes. Yeah. I would go to somebody's house to buy like a broken iPhone 3g. This is how long ago this yep. was, but they'd be like, Hey, I've got this box of just other electronics and it's old home phones and all this old tech. I just clean it up throw it on eBay. And it, it would just, I made a lot of money for, for 15 years ago, just doing it. It's like a, a little bit of side hustle. I never tried to scale it or anything, but it, it was always good. It was always good side money to have. That's okay. Um, Cause I, I scaled it. So I, yeah. in 90, 98, the way I got in, uh, we'll go back even further. Palm pilots. Yeah. I actually uh, was, I, I ended up doing a website showing people how to take apart a Palm pilot. And at wow. this time, I had worked at Apple Computer in the 90s. I was at Hewlett Packard as an IT manager. And, but it was just a side thing. Like I would go basically show people. It was one of the first sites to show you how to take apart a Palm Pilot. And then what I ended up doing is a lot of people started requesting parts from me. They're like, where do I buy that? Where do I buy that? And I was like, I, got, I almost did the opposite of you. I got on eBay to find the broken Palm Pilots, strip them down, and sell all the parts. Yeah. So I'd spend call it $250 on an, on a uh, Palm Pilot, which at that time they were like 400 and some dollars for a Palm. So I would end up buying them off eBay, strip down the parts and sell individual parts. And it was like, I was always left with the screens. Long story short, I ended up figuring out how to cut off the touch panel part that cracked all the time, which also happened on the 3G and 3GS, by the way, for the iPhone. Yeah. I figured out how to do that and replace just that glass touch uh, surface. And uh, that created my entire business. In 2001, we went online. I think the first week I had seven orders. And within a couple of weeks, I was getting five to seven orders a day. And it just took off. That evolved. And you know, eventually in 2007, I posted the very first YouTube take apart of the iPhone. Nobody had posted the, because I waited in line to get the iPhone in 2007. Yeah. Posted the take apart of it. Again, another e-waste you know, sort of scenario is uh, it was, I posted it. I didn't have parts for it at the time. It was more just showing people that, hey, if this breaks, here's how you take it apart to fix it. Yeah. And I uh, posted on YouTube and within the weekend, within three days, I had 100,000 views. Wow. When I sold the company and uh, the iPhone business in uh, 2018, the YouTube channel had 48 million views on it from all wow. the different take-aparts and everything. So not to get off subject, but point no, being yeah. that there's a lot of niche companies out there you got to think outside the box. Even if you're looking to sell your business, what are little things that you can do? Wrapping back to what uh, Barca's point was, 
understanding your supply chain, understand little things like cardboard dimensions, thickness of cardboard, packaging, all those little things can really add up. If you don't get what we're talking about, everything is something to add up. Gatita, we're helping you get one to 3% back on average of your annual FBA sales, right? Changing up something like the packaging it's in, the cardboard used to ship it in. Now you're talking a, a percentage there, like the example Barkus gave of Apple with the cable and the uh, charger not being there, the wall adapter not being in the box anymore. They're able to make it smaller. They can ship more of them. Those are little type scenarios. You just got to think outside the box on what cha little changes can I make that yeah. could make a difference to my bottom line that will increase when you go to sell. Yeah. Everything you save is now three to eight X multiple to your advantage when you go to sell your business. Absolutely. And if you need inspiration, like the, the example of iPhone, they're probably, I gave that as an example because they have squeezed out efficiency from the manufacturer down. So if you need inspiration, like start looking at your biggest competitor. If you sell compression socks, go find them online and find like that person, whatever it is, whatever it's a Bluetooth speaker, something lightweight or something very fragile, buy that really fragile thing from Amazon and, and look and see how it's packaged, how Amazon ships it, but also how the original package, look at that and get some inspiration there. Because you'll find, if you start looking for ways to add money to the bottom line, then you're going to find it. It takes a while. Gadita is one of those situations where they literally offload everything and they try to do, they try to do as much as they can for you. Sometimes they need to contact you and get and, and ask some questions about certain things, but they do all that heavy lifting for you. So it's, there's, it's, especially if you're doing anything stable, if you're, whether you're $10,000 a month or $100,000 a month, whatever that is, if you're stable, like this is one of the no-brainer. Now, in the beginning, if you're just now starting out, they're probably not going to find much money because there's just not much going on. Yeah. But the more that you scale that business, and the thing is, again, like adding money to the bottom line, what if you spent the next six months and just, man, what can I fine-tune? Like Now, packaging takes a while. Packaging costs more money to because to, you're going to have to, they're going to, they need a new box. They got the manufacture that you got to exhaust your original inventory, those kind of things. But all these things start to add up. And, you know, what if you can add an extra 5% to your bottom line every year? That's a big deal. Whether you want to sell or not, that extra 5%, if you're doing a million dollars a year, that's 50 grand. That's an, that's a full-time US-based employee, depending on their job. But that could also be, that could be launching a brand new SKU, two or three SKUs. It really depends. I think these conversations about, there's so much information about there about how to scale a business, but really trying to optimize a business and, and taking it from the manufacturer and dropping down, like all these little things start to add up over time. And I'll tell you this, maybe I'm a weird consumer, but I like good packaging. It sounds weird. Maybe it's just because I'm a dad and I just appreciate weird things these days, but we've all bought those. You know, remember it was popular back in the day where you bought maybe something, an electronic that was in like that vacuum sealed thing. And it was just so thick. You had to get, you had to get a chop saw to cut it all open. We yeah. all hated that. And the market forced these manufacturers to be like, don't do that anymore. It's just some batteries, right? Like why is it sealed? <laughs> and it wasn't uh, small. It was like, here's this two inch by two inch item. We're going to put six inches of plastic around it. And it was like, yeah. And it was so it was thick. You crazy. couldn't even use regular scissors. You had to use like your lawn shears or something just to get yeah. it open. It was ridiculous. But that's just one of those examples. Like they did that because I was quick and cheap and, and, and if, easy at the time. It wasn't necessarily 
efficient. And, and now you see like the Amazon used to, I don't know, this is happening over the past couple of years. You used to see where you could buy something and you could also click a button. It was like frustration-free packaging. Like who would not click that button? You remember that? But I think yeah. that's gone now because the, nobody wants to buy frustration packaging. Let, let um, me ask you this, Marcus, though. So talking about packaging, okay. Not to get too deep into this, but the, this could be a scenario that people should look at. So another tip possibly to look at. If it's a retail box, look at, is it white cardboard versus the standard brown? Yeah. Is there a price difference when you're manufacturer, when you're talking to them about this from a white box to a brown box? Is there a difference of the consumer receiving the item, depending on the item, in a box versus a poly bag or, or some sort of bag, right? Yeah. Does, it could be a white bag, could be a clear bag, whatever. I'll give you a great, for instance, we always talk about, don't, first of all, don't get into the iPhone accessory area. You don't want to go that route. It's a pain in the butt. Been there and done that. But when I buy a iPhone case for my new iPhone off Amazon, do I care if it shows up in a nice black box with a ribbon around it and all that stuff? I'm going to rip that thing open, throw it on my phone and chuck it in the trash or hopefully recycle bin, to be honest. But if it shows up and it's a little tiny poly clear bag, what do I care? It's more about the product because yeah. that product that shows up in that poly bag is the same exact product that shows up in that nice, sophisticated box. It's the same product. It's made from the same material, same manufacturer. It's just a different way to put it. Now, different scenario. If you're talking about a higher end product that okay. somebody's spending a bit more money on, and I'm sure there's a certain price point where you go from, let's say, a, a clear bag to a nice box with printing on it and everything like that, that's different. I expect if I pay a premium money for a higher-end item, but something as simple as like an iPhone case, even some of these high-end manufacturers that are making iPhone cases, it's still the same iPhone case as the one you get for three bucks as you get for $29.99 in a yeah. store. So can you, can you imagine the outrage if somebody got their brand new iPhone in just a clear poly bag from Amazon? <laughs> just lose their minds because we, we, we expect a certain $500 quality. phone. In a... <laughs> that's the cheap, if you can find a $500 iPhone. We've, we expect that quality, right? And, and, and those boxes, like I throw them away, even though they're like the best out there. Like I still throw away the iPhone boxes and the Apple Watch boxes and stuff. Like packaging means a lot but it's short term. Like now there's also a market like, and, and this is how big of a deal it really is at that kind of quality level. There are people that take their, they get their brand new iPhone. You can just sell the box online, mm -hmm. five, 10, $20. There's a market for it, which is really weird to me, but maybe somebody's trying to resell their iPhone and they want that box because they can get a little bit more money out of it, or it's just easier to ship. But the fact that you can just resell the box that your product came in two years that it means something just about the quality of the brand overall, but you're absolutely right. There's certain things that I don't really care. Uh, screen protectors, I want them to come in a box. I don't want them to break in transit, but that's the only sure. reason. If it's something very simple in my hand right now is my, my daughter's AirPods and they have the clear silicone cover on them. Mm -hmm. They came in just a white poly bag. I don't care. Like I don't yeah. care because there's no way that you could run over that package and it's just silicone. So it's not, I don't really care. It, it, it's, and especially in the beginning, if you don't have capital for like proper packaging, I wouldn't recommend it in the beginning anyway, because you want to see, you want to gauge 
how your product is going to react to. You don't want to spend five grand on custom packaging for these boxes, like getting it professionally designed, like all the graphics and everything. And then the product flops, but yeah, no, it's def it's definitely important, especially the more fragile or the more expensive things are. If you buy a Lamborghini, it's coming in a custom trailer and that's the only car there. And it's got a cloth wrap, a very nice cover wrapped around it. And it's going to, it's a pre it's a, it's a presentation, right? They're not going to do that with a Toyota. A Toyota's not going <laughs> to deliver it in a custom car carrier. No, so I've never seen a Lamborghini delivered, so I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, <laughs> I, I've just I'll seen take your word. On, I've just seen it on YouTube. I saw, I just, yeah, I don't have to. Yeah. So again, like the overall conversation is really just trying to maximize that value. And, and a lot of these things are, they're not fun to do. Like it's not, it's fun to launch a product for most people. I would think it's fun to launch a product. So maybe it's just nerve wracking for a lot of people. But there's these cool, exciting things about a business and there's other things that like are just necessary, but over time, and again, these are all things that make your brand look more valuable. If you've got everything fine-tuned and optimized and it's literally a turnkey business, like you just basically give us the keys and we're, we walk inside the home, we're good. Some people want to buy a project home, but you're not going to get that same money as if you put 15 grand into new bathrooms. Yeah. I always say, everybody's always concentrating on driving sales, getting more sales, which don't get me wrong. You got to do Important. that. But I'm also, I always say saving money is making money. Cause really, if you're figuring out ways to save money, you're adding more money to your bottom line. You're increasing your profits by decreasing your expenses, whatever that is, like the scenarios we just gave hundred yep. percent. And there's so many tools and I'm sure Barkus, I, we didn't get a chance to go over who's already been on the show or who's coming up, but there's so many different services out there that can save you small percentages here and there, they start adding up. Like you gave that whole scenario. If I could save five, you know, 5% on a million dollar company, that's $50,000. What can I do with that 50,000? Can yep. I maybe launch more products, things like that? You went over that whole scenario, but all these little services and things we're talking about are things that, by the way, the aggregators are doing them. They're using these services. So why wouldn't you use them and save yourself the money? It also, again, adds to your bottom line, turns around and makes you more valuable to them. You have a bigger bottom line. You're making more money. Now they're going to be even more interested. And plus it just shows that you've gone out and done these things. It's less they have to do. Absolutely. So real quick, as we wrap up, Rob, if anybody has questions about how to sign up, where to sign, and I think you had a special offer. Yeah. I Did I send you the link to that? If not, I could probably- Here, I'll pull it up in five seconds. So while he looks it up, just real quick, if you want to get a hold of me personally, it's pretty simple. It's Rob, R-O-B at Gatita.com, which is G-E-T-I-D-A.com. Rob at Gatita.com is my email. You feel free to email me directly uh, with any questions or scenarios. I'm all over social media. I have my own podcast, but I'm not here to promote that, but you can definitely find it out there. And then any LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, I'm on. if you head out to any of the trade shows, I'm all at pretty much all the trade shows usually dressed up in the money suit, they call it. So money man is usually there. Come by the Katita booth. Which, uh, which one did I give you, Barkas? I can't, I couldn't remember which uh, scenario I, can't, I gave you. I can't find it, but the link for, to get the special offer for Katita will be in the description for the podcast. There you go. There you go. And, it, and if for any reason it, you can't remember it, email me. I'll make sure you get $400 free and free FBA reimbursements. Your first $400 will be on us. No fees, no nothing, no long-term commitment. Hit me up, rob at katita.com. Just ask me for the $400. You have to be a new customer. If you're already currently a customer, I unfortunately can't apply that for you. But if you're a brand new customer, head on over to katita.com, sign up and uh, email me and I'll make sure you get the first $400 and free FBA reimbursements.
And, and one last thing, Rob, are you going to any events before the end of the year? Is there anything else? I know you're the traveling guy. I, I usually, I've actually been traveling since Prosper in July, yeah. uh, pretty much home a week, gone a week, every, every week uh, since I just finished actually traveling for myself. It doesn't mean the Katita team will not be there. Our yeah. marketing team will definitely be at several events coming up here. I think there's a couple events in Miami, one in uh, New York. Definitely good. New Jersey team. too. Yeah, yeah, New Jersey. In fact, I think the New Jersey one might be today, or at least one of them is today. So yes, we our team is always there. I just got back from Austin from a seller meetup. It was a great time. But when things kick off uh, again here coming up January, February and all the events, I will be at all the events for sure. Definitely come by the booth. Feel free to stop by and get a photo with the money guy, money suit and uh, ask any questions. I'm always open to questions about, it doesn't have to be about refunds. And I've been in e-commerce over 20 years. I've seen a lot of things. Marcus too. It's probably why him and I, we get along so well and talk all the time. It's just a pretty, pretty extensive background. We've seen and done a lot of things in this industry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not traveling anymore for the rest of the year, not for work that I know of. We'll see what happens. Uh, <laughs> man, I, I always appreciate talking to you. You've got a wide background and, and, a, and a lot of knowledge about a lot of things. So thanks for coming on and sharing your thoughts uh, and, and expertise in these. And I hope to see you soon after the new year. So I appreciate that. Thanks, Barkus. And everybody be sure to uh, go over to Barkus uh, podcast. And make sure to give it a five-star review and uh, subscribe to it so you get uh, informed every time he has a new podcast out. We're on uh, Spotify, Apple, and Google. So that covers about 99% of uh, our listeners. Excellent. Um, thanks again, man. And we will talk soon. Thanks.